We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Psalm 39, please, for our scripture reading this evening, 39 and 40. 39 is to the chief musician, uh, to Jeduthun, uh, a psalm of David. Some of these are perhaps musical notations or annotations about which tune or rhythm or something. Verse 1, Psalm 39, I said, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a, with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me while I was musing. The fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. Selah. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner as all my fathers were. Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. And then Psalm 40. To the chief musician, again, a psalm of David, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it and fear, and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust, and does not respect the proud nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My, eye, my ears, rather, you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, 
I delight to do your will, O God, and your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord, you yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. Let me just pause and ask you to ponder that for a moment. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. May God strengthen you with the reading of his word tonight. The remainder of our time will be given over to uh, Brother Jansen as he shares the word. Good evening. Thank you for coming out this evening. A great encouragement to me. I hope to others who are here with you this evening. And uh, just thankful for those hymns we could sing this evening, pulling out some of those other hymn books that we don't haven't used uh, in my time here. So uh, it's been a little while, but uh, glad we can learn some new ones and sing some old ones. Uh, but I'd like to draw our attention now for the remainder of our time to the book of Ephesians. We'll pick up where we left off last time. Thank you to John for his song leading, but also trying to incorporate uh, some of the truths in which we find in the passage of Scripture that we will be studying this evening. So thank you for that. Um, Just as a point of review, as we look back into the text this evening, we did an introduction a few weeks ago last Sunday morning instead of the evening because, uh, as you recall, we didn't have an evening service. We looked at the very beginning of chapter 1, Uh, did a very kind of summary of verses 1 and 2. Of course, there's more there than what we talked about, but uh, often is the case there's some of the kind of typical introduction of Paul and his letters. And then uh, we move on to uh, the body of the letter, which starts in verse 3. And uh, we looked at verses 3 to 6 last time, and I hope that was a blessing to you. Remember uh, our truth that we we're grasping from this section of the text, at least as I see it, is this, that God deserves praise for his saving work in Christ and by the Spirit. And of course, that's really just a summation. It's much more expansive as far as what that looks like, God's role and plan of salvation uh, in verses 3 to 14 that we see. But this could be a kind of a summary statement we could put on the whole thing. And that's uh, what I've done here or tried to do that God deserves our praise. 
really what we're looking at here is not so much commands like we find in some uh, portions of, of even Ephesians, really chapters 4 through 6, there are more commands, more imperatives that we find. But really what Paul is laying out is some of these fundamental theological truths. You know, teaching is not just, you know, commands, but it's also teaching us to think appropriately, to understand correct doctrine. And so really that's what we're trying to achieve in our study here in verses 3 to 14 as far as what has God done. We want to properly and correctly understand uh, what he has done and what he is doing how to think about that, and all of that should then cause us to pause and say, praise be to God. And that's what Paul is doing. In verse 3, remember, he says he starts off this kind of eulogy or blessing, benediction, and he says, blessed be the God, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it for a moment, you know, often when we think of the word blessing or someone being blessed, even like Pastor just read a moment ago in Psalm 40, uh, one of the verses says, blessed is he who trusts in God. What does that mean? I think when it's from God to the human, it means that person is favored. God's grace is upon them because they're what? They're trusting in him. And we see that kind of idea throughout all the Old Testament that You know, Israel is blessed when they obey his commands, when they're following him. So when it's from God to man, it's this kind of favor and grace that he is giving. But what about when we are blessing God? You know, how how does that work? You know, we're favoring God. It doesn't seem right that that's kind of how we understand it. And I don't think that's how the term is being used when it's speaking about us humans blessing God. It's really ascribing praise to him for something he has done, something he's accomplished. And when that, um, when that kind of uh, word is used in that way, it's often followed by the reasons why we are to be praising God. And certainly that's the case here as Paul goes on to give us the, the numerous reasons why we are to praise God. I thought just to help you better understand this, we turn just a moment back to Luke chapter 2. I just got here in my uh, daily scripture reading plan, and uh, we find this similar idea that Paul is doing in the prophecy of John the Baptist's father, Zacharias. You remember what his prophecy was? Chapter 1 of Luke 1, or of Luke 1 uh, verse 67, says, Now his father, that is John the Baptist, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, What? Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. Praise be to God of Israel. Why? For he has visited and redeemed his people. So again, we're not ascribing favor to God uh, or some kind of grace to God, but we're giving praise to him for something that he has done. So that's just one example in the New Testament. Another one is just there in chapter 2. Remember uh, um, Simeon, when uh, Jesus is brought into the temple to, uh, for his dedication, verse 28 of chapter 2, it says, And he took him up in his arms and what? Blessed God. What was, what was his blessing? Well, 29 tells us now, it says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation 
which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So perhaps that's helpful a little bit as we consider what does it mean to bless God. And simply put, it means to give ascribe praise to his name like Zacharias did. Uh, like Simeon did, and now as we see in the example of Paul. Let's uh, turn our attention, though, back to Ephesians chapter 1 then and look at uh, the text this evening, verses 7 to 12. But what I'd like to do, although it takes a little time, is to read again verses 3 through 14 because, as you may recall, I uh, mentioned in our kind of introductory message that this is really one very, very long sentence you know, us English readers might say, you know, almost looks like a bunch of run-on sentences, and Paul liked to do that, break the English, you know, grammar kind of, uh, you know, system that we have. But, of course, you know, he's writing in Greek, so he can do what he wants. But uh, this helps us keep the flow of things and really understand then the context of which uh, we're looking at this evening. So beginning in verse 3, Paul writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And all we could do in response is say, praise be to God. Amen. So verses 3 to 6 then, as just a little reminder before we then move into verse 7, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then what I think he's going on in the rest of this section is to show us a sampling of what those blessings are, what those spiritual blessings are that we have received. He doesn't cover all of them. It's not comprehensive, but these are some of the very kind of fundamental things from which maybe we could say all the other blessings flow out. So last time, you know, we we looked at these fundamental things that God has done, acts or works in the past. Number one, he chose us before the foundation of the world, verse 4 tells us that. 
And that was accomplished in the fact that he predestined us to adoption as sons. So he's chosen us. That's, you know, we use that terminology, uh, in synonymous to election. And this was done, uh, in the past, having predestined us to adoption as sons. And all of that brings praise to God because it is his grace, verse 6 tells us, that has made this possible. Without the grace of God, we would not be chosen. We would not have been predestined to adoption as sons. But Paul goes on then in verses 7 through 12 to show us other ways in which God's grace has been shed upon us that ought to bring praise to him, that does bring praise to him, that we should join in that praise to him. And there's two truths, I think, that we can pull from verses 7 to 10, which is this, praise to God for his grace in redemption and revelation. First, we see in verses 7 and 8, God's grace is the cause of our redemption. His grace is the cause of our redemption. Look with me again at verses 7 and 8. Paul writes there, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence or understanding. So God's grace we see in in these two verses as we start out is the cause for our redemption. And Paul continues forward here in ascribing praise to God by declaring yet another way God has graciously worked as he saves us and has planned our salvation from the beginning. First, uh, those who are in Christ have redemption through Christ's blood. The, remember we said last time, you know, we had kind of have to go through and trace, you know, what are the antecedents of these pronouns being used by Paul. In the hymn at the beginning of verse 7, I take to be referring back just to the prior uh, person at the end of verse 6 called the beloved or his dearly beloved son, God's son, Christ. So in Christ then, we have redemption through Christ's blood, his blood. Christ is the one that shed his blood on our behalf, and so that's the one being spoken about here. We, of course, know that truth because of other scriptures that we have, that Christ is the one that has died on our behalf. Note the primary focus is on why it is that we are recipients of his grace. Why is it uh, that we are recipients of his grace and why it is that we have been redeemed? We have redemption because we are what? In, In who? In Christ. We're in Christ. So the reason... Uh, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, the cause of all that being his grace, is because we are in Christ. The present benefits of salvation by God's grace are because we are somehow spiritually connected to him, to Christ. Being in Christ is a result of, of new birth, regeneration, we call it, and can also be described as union with Christ. Those who are in Christ are united with Christ, and that happens because we have been born again. 
We could also bring in the kind of idea or terminology, concept of being baptized into uh, into Christ, the, the uh, spirit baptism. We talked about that a little bit yesterday morning in our men's meeting. But those who are born again, those who are regenerated, who re- who receive new life, are baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ or into Christ. You know, he is uh, the head of that body. And so being in Christ simply, we could say, be, means being united to Christ, being connected to him spiritually. You know, we could go on and on about what that looks like, the implications of that. But Paul is simply saying here in chapter 1 that our redemption... Cause, the cause of it being God's grace is because we are spiritually connected to Christ. We are in him. One of the blessings of being in Christ, then, is that we have redemption through his blood. Through his blood. Colossians uh, 1, 13 and 14 carries a similar idea here. I'll just turn there and read it. You don't have to go over there. But chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 He says, uh, Paul writes to the Colossians, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And so this is a very important idea, concept, truth that Paul wants us to understand. He wanted the Ephesians to understand. He wanted the church in Colossae to understand, and he wants us to understand it today as well. Although we uh, typically think of redemption as a past act, Paul emphasizes it as a present possession of the believer. The word in Greek is actually in the active present state. We have redemption. It's not just that we were redeemed, That is certainly true, we were redeemed, but we also have redemption now. It's in our possession, and in fact, it's not just a past thing in a present, it's actually also a future thing as well. Look, uh, getting ahead a little bit, look down to verse 14. The Holy Spirit is what? He is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And so redemption has this idea of something past. We have been redeemed, but it's also our present possession. It's something that is yet to be fully realized completely until uh, a day in the future when Christ returns and we're, we're glorified and we reign with him. Redemption, though, means to buy out of slavery or captivity by the payment of a ransom price. So, you know, we can say, thank you, Lord, that we're redeemed, but what are we redeemed from? What is the significance of all of this in regard to our life and where we're at? So we might ask ourselves this question, if redemption means to buy out of slavery or captivity, what precisely is the captivity from whence we've been bought? Well, Scripture elsewhere teaches us that we in some way, we're captive to the law. Galatians 3 and 4 tells us on numerous occasions that um, at least, you know, the Jews in that sense were captive. And in some sense, you know, um, the law is written on our hearts. And 
perhaps we were captive to the fact that you know we were striving to do the, the the laws that were written on our conscience, but was that getting us anywhere in regard to our favor with God? No, and so we were captive to the law. Of course, more significantly or understandably, we're captive to sin. We, of course, from birth have the original sin, the issue of that, of imputed sin, and of course our sin nature passed down through our parents. And so we're in captivity to that. We're captive to the inability to do good. Romans 3, 12 tells us this. Can anyone do good? No. So this is, these are the things from which we have been redeemed, been bought out from this captivity. But in order to be rescued from sin and its penalty, penalty being separation from God, God's condemnation, there is a ransom price. 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 6, verse 20 tells us this, as well as chapter 7, verse 23. There is a price. It's not uh, simply that God just, you know, waved the magic wand, as it were, and said, uh, your sins are gone. There is a real Price to be paid. Of course, any of us who have are any bit familiar with Scripture, we know exactly what that price was. Christ's very own life came to earth, lived a perfect life, being then the perfect substitute for our sins. So, therefore, Christ's sacrificial death on the cross was that ransom. It was that price. The Price needed to free us from sin's bondage. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 tells us that for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and what? To give his life a ransom for many. And this idea of ransom or God being our Redeemer is uh, seen even in the Old Testament. It's, it's not unfamiliar to the Old Testament, Job 19.20. Remember what Job says, you know, he awaits seeing his Redeemer. I know, I know my Redeemer lives. Even uh, we have um, this idea, though not explicit, but implicit in the book of Ruth, that there is a Redeemer that we look forward to that comes through uh, the line of, of David, line of Judah. The words, uh, going back to Ephesians 1, though, through his blood... Describe the kind of violent, bloody death that Jesus suffered in our place and that was required in order to pay that penalty and to be that ransom price. One of the results of our redemption, then, is the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.14, we already read that, tells us that, and follows the language we find here in Ephesians 1, that our redemption through his blood, is in part for the forgiveness of sins. Remember what Hebrews 9.22 tells us? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so Christ not only lived a perfect life and died, but he died a death that also included the shedding of blood. Now, you know, there's not any specific uh, power 
in that blood per se, although we kind of sing that hymn, but really the work and the powers and the fact that Christ was our substitute and the whole cross work, this whole substitutionary death is what was powerful and was at work because of his sinlessness and his deity. But, of course, we know, and even from that, the Old Testament and the sacrifices, that there was a real need for blood to be shed. Without that, Hebrews, of course, as we've said, told, tells us there is no remission of sins. So consider this reality for a moment. Not only does our redemption rescue us from bondage to sin, gives us new life, gives us the ability to not sin, though we often fall short of that. We do have that real ability in Christ to overcome the temptation of sin. So not only does it redeem us from bondage to sin, from death, it includes the pardon of our sins against God, whether past, present, or future. God's redemption in Christ gives us the forgiveness of sins, those committed before our salvation, God wiping us that slate clean, as it were. Sins that we commit today, God, God's blood, having been poured out, cleanses us from those sins. And even the sins that we will uh, inevitably commit, even maybe tonight, later on, God has already through his son, covered that for us. Our redemption was the result of the abundance of God's grace, Paul goes on to tell us at the end of verse 7. All, all of this, that is our redemption and the forgiveness of sins, was according to the riches of his grace. According to the riches of his grace. Our, our redemption then is the result of God's abundant grace toward us. Apart from God's abundant grace, our redemption and forgiveness of sins would be certainly unattainable. By grace, we have been saved through faith, and that not of works, lest any man should boast. It is by God's grace alone, then, that we have redemption. We could not obtain to that. The law was never intended, even in the Old Testament, when it was in effect, was never intended to save, Right? We're not talking about two means of salvation, you know, one in the old, under the old covenant, one under the new. No, God's salvation is always and always will be by grace, never to be obtained by works or keeping of the law. You know, no man can keep the law perfectly, and if he doesn't, then he's guilty of disobeying the whole law, we're told. So God's graciousness is a reoccurring theme of this section, remember Uh, Back in verse uh, 6, what Paul says, having predestined us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of what? His grace. God's grace is what has made all of this possible. It's not of ourselves. But God did not merely show believers grace. He also caused grace to abound toward us. 
It's not only you know, the reason or the cause, the ground for all of this uh, salvific work, but it is also something that he has caused to abound toward us. We may, we may often think that you know, God has shown his grace, shed his grace upon us when he saved us. That is certainly the truth, but the reality is God's grace is continually pouring out upon you day in and day out. It's not just something at salvation. It's a continual thing that God is doing, shedding his grace upon us. Paul goes on to say, which he made, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. He lavished his grace upon us abundantly, and God did all of this according to his perfect wisdom and understanding. It was not haphazard or on a whim, we might say, but just as he chose us before the foundation of the world, so he also secured our redemption through Christ's death, the forgiveness of sins, all in accord with his infinite wisdom and understanding or prudence. Now, a second way in which God has lavished his grace upon us is this, by making known to us his will. God's grace is seen in our redemption, but secondly, his grace is seen in that he has revealed to us his will. And we see this in verses 9 and 10. Paul goes on to write, Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. The content of this mystery that Paul speaks of is only later explained more fully to us in verse 10 at the end. We'll get there in a moment. But before then, uh, let's you know, kind of clear the air here as far as when Paul talks about this mystery. The Bible uses the term mystery in more of a distinct way than typically we might use it in our vocabulary. You know, to us, a mystery is something closed and unknown. It's a secret, you know. You might tell a friend, you know, I have a secret, I'm going to tell you. Don't tell anyone else. Well, it's not really a secret anymore, but you've told them. But it's a secret to someone else, maybe. It's a mystery. You know, perhaps uh, you look at your child and they do something, and you think, why did they do that? It's a mystery. You know, why, why they made that choice, why they did that, you know. Uh, but that's not how the Bible uses the term mystery, at least in part. In the Bible, a mystery was something previously secret and known, and so in one case it truly was a secret, part of God's secret uh, will or sovereign will, but now it is something that was, has been made known. It's not that way any longer that it's secret and unknown. It was, it's been open and revealed. It's, it's like uh, you know, the book has been open, and we can now read it, and we see God has shown it to us. This is often said about you know, God's kind of comprehensive plan of salvation that would include the Gentiles, something that previously was not known to the Jews, uh, you know, especially. But, of course, you know, they should have had maybe some inkling, in fact, you know, with the Abrahamic covenant and that 
through them all the nations would be blessed. But you know, the full uh, way in which all of that would come to place was not known until Christ died and until he rose again. And, you know, and then it began to be unfolded uh, that God was doing something greater that was inclusive uh, of the Gentiles. Of course, there are still things that are part of God's uh, sovereign or secret will to us today. Uh, you know, even Matthew 24, 36, what is Jesus say there, no one knows the hour or time. So there are things today that are unrevealed, that are a mystery, that will only later be revealed. But the fact is, some things about God we will never fully know. That will always remain a mystery to us in our finiteness, that are a part of his infiniteness that we just cannot comprehend. But this, but in the case of his plan of salvation, God has made known to us his will. It's like uh, what pastor's been teaching on in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 to 16. Remember Peter on the rooftop? And God made known to him through a vision that uh, God, that Peter was not to call common or unclean that which God was making not that way any longer. And so God has made known to us in this way his will. And just as God's choice of believers to be adopted as son was in accordance with his good pleasure of his will, so too his making known the mystery of salvation, the salvation plan was something that pleased the Father to do. The eternal plan was always included Christ as the focus. He says this in verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Think about that just for a moment. God chose to reveal this because it brought pleasure to him. And that is not, you know, egocentric for God to always do what pleases him, is it? No, because he is creator God. God takes pleasure in his plan that would come to fruition in Christ. And not only did it bring him pleasure, I think it pleased him to know that we know what he is doing, to reveal that to us. Who are we to know these things? But God has revealed them, and it brings pleasure to him that we know at least in part what he is doing in terms at least of his saving work. Not only did the making known of God's plan of salvation, though, bring pleasure to him, but it also was part of his administrative work to bring all things to their ultimate conclusion in Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, look with me back at verses 9 and 10. All of this is according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. So, again, not only did the making known of God's plan of salvation bring pleasure to him, but it was also part of his administrative work to bring all things to their ultimate conclusion in Christ. The phrase, in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, 
is not looking back to Christ's first coming, though that is that terminology is used in Galatians 4, 4 to speak about that, the time in which God had ordained for Christ to come and to die. That's how it's used in Galatians 4. But here in Ephesians 1, it's not necessarily looking back to his first coming, but God's ordering of history in such a way that it culminates in the achievement of his purpose. In this way, then, it looks forward to what God will do in Christ when he comes at the second coming. God has ultimate control over all that is happening in the universe, and he is now administrating all things to come to their appointed climax. In who? In Christ. In this way, then, it looks forward, not backward, but forward to the second coming of Christ. You know, we're familiar with the idea of dispensations. You know, we call ourselves a dispensational church because we see throughout history at least, uh, you know, three but many more times in which God has been orchestrating through uh, epochs of time, administrations of time, you know, under law, and then before that, even though under conscience, and then looking forward to uh, to the time of the dispensation of the church. God has been has working through all of these administra- uh, administrations of times and doing all that, overseeing of all that work, pointing forward to its ultimate climax. You know, the climax did not come at the end of the age of the conscience or, or government or, or covenant or law, but looks forward to the second coming of Christ in which all things will come in subjection and in order under Christ in his kingdom. So we now then get to the content of the mystery that Paul has, is saying has been revealed to us in the end of verse 10. Paul writes that in the dispensation of the fullness of, t- of the times, here it is, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which, <clears throat> excuse me, are on earth in him. What was once secret but has now been made known to us is God's plan to gather together in one all things in Christ. The phrase, though, here, gather together in, in one all things, uh, is a literary device found only in one other uh, scripture passage, Romans 13.9. Uh, 13, in that passage, I won't read it, uh, the whole verse, he's uh, talking about the commandments like adultery and murder, you know, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And then he, Paul writes, and if there is any other commandment, all, excuse me, are all summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul's saying, you know, all of these commandments could be summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if this is how Paul is using the word here, this this term, then the mystery that God has now revealed to us is God's orchestrating of past dispensations to accomplish his purpose. 
its summing up, we might say, or conclusion in Christ. That will be a time of significant and complete reconciliation between God and man, as well as all of creation. Christ's death was a significant and necessary step in accomplishing that goal, but the curse of sin is yet to be fully lifted, right? We, we know that. It's very experienced today in our own lives, but also in creation. We still await the full reconciliation of God and the disparate elements of creation, the various dispensations of the past, we could say, are part of a masterpiece that God has ensured will come to its perfect completion. It can be summed up or concluded in the person Christ as he returns and sets up his kingdom. As we consider all of this, just pause for a moment and let all that sink in. We're talking about kind of the macrocosm of God's work throughout history. If God has seen to orchestrate all of these dispensations to see their final conclusion, the summation of them in Christ, do you think he has the ability to order your life? Ensure that you will be kept by him? That God will never unadopt you? but his spirit will reside in you forever as a guarantee of your final redemption. That to God is like microcosmic stuff. If he's orchestrating through all of history, all of the dispensations, and the summation of all of those are found in the coming of Christ, can he not ensure that you will make it to that point? In the last three or four minutes here, we conclude with what verses 11 and 12 teach us, that we should praise God for making us his heirs. Paul writes in verses 11 and 12, In him we also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. As Paul continues this string of reasons which God is to be praised in one long but beautiful sentence, he mentions yet another blessing that we have in Christ. Because of our relationship in Christ, that being united to Christ we spoke about earlier, we have obtained an inheritance. Romans eight seventeen also speaks about this, the idea of inheritance and being heirs. This inheritance is not something we've earned on our own, nor is it something that we're fully experiencing presently. Remember what we said in verse 14? The Spirit is our guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. And so, yes, in part, we can say today, I am an heir. I have obtained the inheritance but I've yet to fully experience that and all of what that means. So we shouldn't shy away from saying, I have obtained that. That's the language Paul says. He use, uses the present tense here. It's not just future. And why can we say that with such certainty? Well, 
Number one, because it comes from God. He's the one that's given us, given it to us, and God's spirit indwells us. It's a surefire deal. It's ours. What is the inheritance that we've obtained? Perhaps in some we could say it's our inheritance. The inheritance is the kingdom of God. Matthew 5 uses that language. You know, theirs is the kingdom of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 talks about us being heirs and also inheriting uh, God's kingdom. Galatians 3 and 4 talk about this idea of we are heirs. We are heirs because we have been adopted by God. Remember what we talked about earlier? As adult sons adopted, we are joint heirs with Christ of God's kingdom. And this is seen in that we will reign with Christ as his kind of vice regents over creation in the world. This blessing came to us because we are predestined by God to have it. The idea is similar to that of verse 5, that we have been predestined to adoption as sons, so too our inheritance was a part of God's sovereign control and orchestration in eternity past that included him privileging us by making us heirs. Not only did he purpose it, but as the only sovereign who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Words that emphasize God's meticulous planning and control pile up here in these two verses. He purposed, he worked, he, his counsel and will. All these terms point to God, the one who initiated and oversees all of it. This section of praise ends with this statement in verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. I believe that Paul here is speaking not only of the Jews who you know, first believed, perhaps, you know, even in Jerusalem, and those who had received God even before that time, believing truly in God with genuine faith, but also Gentile Christians who had formerly believed in Christ when they first received it, including Paul himself and perhaps others who were with him uh, around his imprisonment. All of these together, both Jew and Gentile Christians who formerly believed in Christ, together are to be to the praise of his glory. This accords with God's purposes for his saving work in verses 5 and 6 that we looked at before. Just as Paul was giving praise then to God for his saving work in Christ and by the Spirit, as he describes all that God has done and is doing in and for believers we too should respond in praise to God for his glorious grace. Seen in all that he has done to ensure our salvation, adoption, final redemption, and the reordering and subjection of all things in heaven and earth in Christ. Pray that we too would praise God. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Let's do that now as we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, praise be to your name. Although, who are we to even ascribe that? Yet you've commanded us to do that, even in Psalm 8, to give praise to your name. So, Lord, we humbly do that, knowing that we are privileged ones, not because we have merited it, but because you have simply favored us, chosen us in Christ, and we thank you. Lord, may you bless now your people, cause your face 
to shine upon them. In Christ's name, amen.